0: Hi, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Orca Nerd Podcast. Um, I'm a little starstruck today. Our guest is an absolute staple for the marine mammals all around the world. Her PhD dissertation was on the social structure of wild orcas. She now is a part of multiple groups, such as the Whale Sanctuary Project and the Animal Welfare Institute that educates the public on harmful effects of captivity of killer whales. I'd like to welcome Dr. Naomi Rose. Thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: (laughs) So I'd like to start out just a little segment just about you and everything like that in your career. So according to the book of At Death of Sea World, we have John Denver's Calypso music video to thank for your passion (laughs) for marine life.
1: Oh my. Well, yes, it was actually uh, um, a special on television and he had um, partnered up with Jacques Cousteau at that time, and he wrote the song Calypso, and it was playing in the background as they were out with the Calypso, which uh, was Jacques Cousteau's research vessel, and um, dolphins were playing at the bow of the boat, and I just said to myself, I have to do that one day. I have to be out there on the ocean. I lived in the Midwest at the time, and I just felt I had to be out there and Oh yeah, that was, it was everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's like, I actually, um, we live down in Florida now, but I'm originally from Illinois. So I totally understand that feeling. It's, I have to be somewhere around these animals. It's, it's an interesting feeling. Um, What was your first encounter like with wild orcas?
1: I was a graduate student and I was looking for a project and there were several folks working with the orcas up in British Columbia. I was at school at the University of California at Santa Cruz, so BC was pretty far away, but that was where they did their field work, and then they spent the rest of the year in California. So I decided that I would volunteer as a as a research assistant to see if I liked it up there, to see if I liked that kind of work, because at the time I wasn't one hundred percent sure what my project would be. I had certain questions I wanted to ask, but there were several different species I might've asked that question. And so um, I went up as a, just as a research assistant where, you know, you just do whatever the <laughs> primary researchers ask you to do. And I loved it. And the first time I ever saw an orca up close in the wild um, was from the shore station up there. And once you see that, once you hear that blow, when they come to the surface, and certainly when you're out in a small research boat and you encounter them up close and you see how big they are and so on, it's, it's uh, a memory that you never, ever forget. And I ended up going up there for five uh, seasons in the end to collect my data, and it was just pretty much one of the best times of my life.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I feel like being so close up to them in such a small area. I mean, I was, you know, in a whale watching boat, so I didn't exactly get to see that effect, but that's got to be somewhat humbling as well. I mean, we we all love orcas, but <laughs> the bigger well, they are, the scarier it gets yeah, a little bit. Yeah,
1: and I think, I think that's what's really interesting. Um, the fish eaters, which are the ecotype that I studied, they're really very different than the marine mammal eaters. And up there, they're referred to as residents and transients. and the fish eating residents, no, you don't, you don't ever feel afraid of them. They're very uh, conservative is how I put it. They're very cautious around things that they don't recognize, that are novel things, things that are new to them. So they don't actually, for example, in a in a mild fit of insanity, one of my one of my research assistants, once I became the primary researcher, actually jumped in the water ahead of some residents. They were coming down uh, the shoreline, and we knew that. We'd heard on the radio that they were coming down the shoreline. So he just jumped into the water, which was one thing, really cold. Um, (laughs) But also, um, you know, some killer whales were coming down the shoreline and he jumped (laughs) into the water ahead of them. But they dived about, I would say, at least 100 yards away from him and didn't come to the surface again until they were 100 yards beyond him. Wow, so they when were all- he jumped in the water like that, you know it was a big creature, a big animal that jumped, splash into the water. None of that was common or typical, and certainly nothing to do with prey because they're fish eaters, and so they simply avoided him. And that's compared to, for example, the transients, the marine mammal eaters, who are um, I, I would argue probably in some ways equally conservative but certainly because large animals in the water are in fact prey to them, large warm-blooded animals are in fact prey to them, they are a little little scarier. And the most amazing point to support this view that they really are very different, you can feel it in your bones that they're different, is the, um, the local prey recognize the difference as well. There are so many cultural differences Transients are much more silent. They don't vocalize because they don't want to startle their smart prey. Residents are much more vocal because fish don't react to them that way. Uh, They uh, travel in larger groups, the residents do, because one fish per whale, you know, they can all share the fish. Whereas the transients, when they hunt down a single uh, sea line, they have to share it amongst themselves. So they travel in small groups and so on. And because they are different in their behavior and their vocalizations in their culture, The local animals recognize the difference as well. You will see, for example, Pacific white-sided dolphins bow riding large resident males. They're literally bow riding in front of their faces because they're so much bigger than the the dolphins that they throw a bit of a wake. And that irritates the males. You can tell they go into evasive behaviors and they try to shake these irritating little dolphins away from them, but they're not gonna kill them necessarily. there are occasionally instances where residents, the fish eaters do attack warm blooded mammals. It's apparently not for prey purposes. Maybe it's, you've really irritated me and I'm gonna knock you out of the water and unfortunately you die. Um, so it's not unheard of for residents to attack mammals but it is not common and they seem to know that. And then when you see the transients come through you will see every marine mammal, even sometimes the residents, just scatter to the four winds. They do wow. not want to be in the area at the same time the transients are. If they hear them coming, because again they do travel silently, and they're very smart that way. But if they do hear them coming, they immediately know it's the different kind, it's the other kind of, of orca. And they and they head for the hills. And I've seen, I saw once a uh, minky whale tear through Johnston Strait, which is was my study site at very high speed and and it was like what was that you know who who was that masked whale and then about i don't know five minutes later a pod of transients came so this minke whale was running ahead of them was fleeing ahead of them so you know you really do know the difference and if you spend a lot of time on the water with them you learn the difference and a couple of the researchers up there always felt that it was much more nerve-wracking to be around the transients than it was the residents that's really cool. And I,
0: I learned on the, uh, the whale-watching boat, I mean, the transient oracles will actually follow the residents for a little while and to be super quiet so they can figure out where they need to go and not startle the other prey, which I thought was really interesting.
1: What I always saw, you know, there were a couple of times when um, transients and residents were in the area at the same time. And one time, and of course, transients, because they are marine mammal eaters, do occasionally travel alone. Their family bonds are much weaker than residents because again they travel in smaller groups because they have to share whatever they kill amongst themselves and so sometimes family groups will split up and you will see solitary orcas if you see a solitary orca it's almost always i mean it's virtually always uh, transient a mammal eater and so one time i saw a large male transient swimming along the shore going in one direction along johnston strait and a pod, a family of resident orcas traveling in the opposite direction along Johnstone Strait, but they were across the strait from each other. And at that point the strait was about a mile in, you know, a mile apart. They were about a mile apart from each other, but parallel. And they actually did pass each other, going in opposite directions, but with a mile of water between them. They wow. do not like encountering each other.
0: So, as someone who wants to work with orcas, um, I'm curious on how you changed your career path from like field research and academics to advocacy.
1: Well, that's not really a very um, uh, admirable story. Oh. I <laughs> I left academia because I didn't have enough patience to teach. I have um, I do have a patience problem. I. I I found that I was unable to give students, you know, the time and patience and attention and sympathy that they needed. Um, you know, I would get very frustrated if I couldn't get my point across during office hours, for example. And I recognized in time, I saved a whole lot of students from a lot of grief, I think, by recognizing <laughs> in time that, you know, wasn't, I wasn't suited to be a, a lecturer, to be a professor. And at that time, I wasn't really sure how to support myself in as a researcher without being an academic. I mean, there are ways you can do it. Sure. Um, but I don't think I would have been very good at those either. You know, fundraising constantly and all that it really wasn't my cup of tea either. Um, because I'm not patient. <laughs> and I'm not good with, I, I love animals. I don't, you know, people frustrate me more often than not. And so I, um, I decided instead that what I would try was um, you know, working for a nonprofit organization, and I was just going to try it. And this was two, two years short of ending my of finishing my graduate career. I, I realized I, I, you know, academia probably wasn't for me. So I started looking into the whole idea of working for a nonprofit, and um, I, I had no idea whether I would be any good at that either. But it just struck me that you know I didn't have to actually deal with individuals, you know, one on one all the time. It was more of a Education, um, give presentations and lectures and so on, which I really love to do. But I wouldn't actually have to, you know, meet with students afterwards during the office hours, that sort of thing. And so I, um, I, I started looking for those sorts of jobs. And I was just very, very lucky that when I was really looking, I, I stumbled, literally stumbled across an advertisement for a position with a nonprofit animal protection organization, the Humane Society of the U.S. And that's where I started my advocacy career. And I literally was only going to do it for a couple of years. I was going to see if I liked it. All of this is in Death at Sea World. And David Kirby spent a lot of time with me and we, we talked about all of these things. And, and I seriously thought I would be working for the HSUS for maybe a couple of years. And that was 27 years ago. Wow. And I ended up working for HSUS for 20 years. And now I'm with the Animal Welfare Institute. And I focus a lot of my attention now on the welfare of captive marine mammals, although I still handle other issues. And that was just sort of an evolution of where the issues took me. I didn't enter the advocacy realm intending to focus on the welfare of captive marine mammals. It's just where I ended up, because that's where the issues took me. And turned out, it just turned out I was really good at it. I, I could have been a lawyer. You know, being a lawyer is actually, in, in many languages, advocate is the same word as attorney and the reason is of course you're advocating for a point of view with the courts for example and you're trying to persuade them for example to exonerate your client or to you know uh, agree with your argument about what the government is doing wrong or whatever your you know your purpose for being in court is and you're you're arguing and that's also you know argument is, is a very common term in the courts and you are trying to persuade the court to agree with your point of view and advocacy for animals, for people, for children, for whatever issue you know, you're, you're into, um, is about persuading the general public, policymakers, the media, celebrities, whomever it is you know, who's listening to your message, to think like you do, to see the issues the way you do, to agree with your point of view. And it just turned out I was pretty good at that.
0: Well, I enjoy that because we wouldn't be here today. So <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I can't tell you how many things, I mean, this podcast kind of started whenever, you know, COVID h- happened and all that good stuff. And I mean, I can't think of, there's so many documentaries that I've watched that you were in and mm-hmm. for the longest time, like I, you know, I had seen you and seen you and seen you. And I was like, oh, that's that one lady. And then I started, you know, doing research and I was like, hey, that's that lady. I'm going to get her on the podcast. <laughs> so sure. And I appreciate all of your research and everything. So one of the things, my original email to your team um, was the subject on mental and physical health of captive orcas. Uh, But of course, the recent research I did, it seems to me that a lot of the issues stem from uh, lack of natural social structures and high amounts of stress. And I know that you guys had recently talked about um, on your webinar, the five different key stresses. Um, Can you shed some light on to that for us?
1: Well, all cetaceans are compromised severely by being confined in concrete tanks. There isn't a single species that doesn't have to adjust tremendously to live in such an unnatural environment. But orcas are at the far end of the worst of the scale because of their size. Also, as you just mentioned, their sociality. They are probably more social than human beings are. And even the transients we were just discussing who are who have weaker social bonds than residents because of their ecology, because of how they forage and what they hunt for. Nevertheless, those family bonds are lifelong. They do occasionally meet up again with their family members and swim together. So they are weaker, but not absent. And so these are highly social animals, very complex in their sociality, who their social partners are, who they mate with, and all of that is extremely complex. They are cooperative foragers, whether they hunt for fish or um, marine mammals. They are cooperative hunters, cooperative foragers. They are cultural. Their focalizations differ depending on where they are. What they feed on dep- differs depending on where they are. Sometimes they're in the same place and they do different things, like the residents and the transients. That's very sophisticated cultural um, behavior. Absolutely. They are long-lived. They are problem solvers, right? You know, They think and that's what makes them in some ways very scary when they're confined in a concrete tank because when they become frustrated when they become bored when they become depressed they may they may act out because they're so large and because they are predators and because it's so frustrating to be in such a small space their acting out could be very dangerous both for other whales it's certainly their violent um aggressive interactions in captivity often escalate it's not that they're not aggressive or even violent in the wild. It's just, they don't tend to escalate because there's all this room to move and escape into if you're the subordinate animal. In a tank, there's nowhere to go. And so sometimes this, you know, in some ways normal aggression just escalates abnormally. And so, uh, you know, we're not trying to paint orcas as some sort of magical mystical creature that comes from Mars and, you know, has really cool Zen characteristics or anything like that. They're complex, they're moody, they're they're thoughtful, they're a lot like us. And the problem with the captivity is that you've taken away everything that makes them what they are, and you've reduced them to a performer in a box. And all of that is going to stress them out. And because they're intelligent and they think in complex ways, how that affects them is going to be quite marked. And it basically the impacts of chronic stress, acute stress is normal. Acute stress is valuable. The fight or flight response, you know, your heart racing, the adrenaline rushing, all of that can save your life if you're you know, about to step out into traffic or whatever. But when it's chronic, and this is true for every species, and this is what we were trying to say in our webinar, why would orcas be different? We're the ones as activists and advocates who often get accused of anthropomorphizing orcas and turning them into little human beings in panda suits. And you know they're not us, and you know they're not like us. Well, they are actually like us, and so every mammal, in many ways, are like us. And the way mammals respond to chronic stress is a fairly conserved physiological issue. Um, some of the the um, mechanisms that stress causes these mechanisms to have direct impacts on your physiology, on your health, those are conserved across species, remarkably well, actually. And so, you know, we teamed up with doctors, human doctors, and and pointed this out. So we do have some evidence, in fact, more than um, we did just 10 years ago, that they are, in fact, responding to this chronic stress very similarly to humans. They do get depressed. They do get bored. This does affect their health. Um, they do de- you know, de- develop things like stereotypies these, repeti- stereotypies, these repetitive behaviors that have No obvious function, but can be very self-harming, very damaging to their bodies. All of this, um, we do have evidence for, but we're lacking the definitive evidence, not because it's not out there, but because the public display industry restricts access to that information. The data are proprietary, which is quite shocking to me as a scientist. And so you can't get access to it unless they approve your access to it and they don't approve access to scientists who might actually report <laughs> that chronic stress is really really bad for these animals. And so we the data we have is what's out there in the public domain which is, you know, not not everything there is, but what we what we have sort of a tiny window into what is there, it's it's pretty bad.
0: And there is, that was actually one of my questions. You said in the webinar um, that the medical records and the necropsies for um, captive orcas are really hard to get. And you said it's proprietary. And so how does this lack of information um, impact
1: your guys' research? Well, I'm not a researcher anymore. I'm an advocate. So what makes me different is that I'm a scientist as well. And so my advocacy is informed by the science very, very directly. I don't just, you know, borrow or cherry pick what I want to use to make a, a nice speech. I actually um, develop my positions and my approaches and my messages and my arguments based on science. And and so what I'm looking for are peer-reviewed published papers out there where I can take those those data and synthesize them into a compelling argument. And if the data aren't there, then you know I have to I have to rethink my arguments, right? Because, for example, somebody just asked us on another webinar, I was just on, you know, what if the data show that you've been saying the wrong thing? And as an example, I said, that's a perfectly legitimate question. What As an example, for a long time, we in the advocacy community, whether we were informed by science or not, you know, there's a lot of activists there who are purely in it for, you know, their belief that it's the right thing to do. You know, they, they couldn't care less what the science is. They have um, ideological and, um, you know, sort of values-driven uh, activism. And and so, you know, a lot of times you'll say things like, oh, well, dolphins live much shorter lives in captivity than they do in, in the wild. And for the longest time, we actually believed that was true because it, it seemed to be true because there was, what data we had showed that they seemed to have shorter lives, but recently there's been more and more peer-reviewed literature that shows that in some of the quote-unquote better facilities, bottlenose dolphins live as long as wild dolphins do, right? Their, their survivorship is about the same. So, so you need to adjust your argument when the data show that. One is, well, that's interesting. They, they live as in good facilities. They live as long as they do in the wild, but why are they living longer, right? They don't have predators. They have three square meals a day. They have veterinary care. They should be living longer absolutely and at best they're only living as long and this is from the best facilities and the most recent published literature they are living as long as they do in well studied populations in the wild but that's it it doesn't get any better than that and that's interesting and then of course there's a whole lot of facilities out there that are not good they're very far from the best um, they're little rat holes quite frankly and and the industry as a whole isn't trying to stop that they just ignore they don't, they are not their brothers keeper and so that I think taints the whole industry. If they allow these facilities that are quite poor uh, in their conditions and in their training and all of that, if they allow those facilities to persist, then they're, they're harming their entire argument. You know that the industry is, is benign. It isn't as a whole. And then you know just the basic idea that you live a long time doesn't mean that your welfare is good. I mean Absolutely. the whole point, for example, and this is a this is a inflammatory analogy, and I don't mean it that way, but it is a it is a legitimate analogy to draw. It's like prison is meant to be punishment, right? But I, it is considered humane and you know in in alignment with, say, for example, the Geneva Con- Convention or whatever like that. That if you do keep prisoners for a long time, like lifetime imprisonment for murder or whatever, that you treat them humanely, that you have health care, that you feed them well. You know that they're they're being punished. They aren't allowed out into the general public, but they are in fact. Um, being punished. You know, they're, they're, they're healthy, but they're being punished. And, and so that's sort of what it could be, right? You know, they're being kept healthy enough to live as long as they would in the wild. But that doesn't mean their welfare is maximized. It certainly doesn't mean that they're not being constrained in their natural behavior. And it doesn't mean they're not suffering mentally or emotionally or, or otherwise. And so, in fact, we have evidence to show that even though they are living as long in the good facilities, they still suffer health problems that are quite rare in the wild, which may be why their lives are not extended. If you see what I mean, their problems are substituted out. So yes, they don't have predators and yes, they don't have food shortages and yes, they have veterinary care, but they are more susceptible to diseases that they sort of can shrug off in the wild because they're not under chronic stress. So their immune systems are better or whatever. Their physiology is is more balanced. And so you end up with, um, for example, um, metabolic disorders like diabetes, literally, uh, hemochromatosis and and diabetes in captive bottlenose dolphins at 15 times the rate that you'd see in the wild than than you would see in the wild. And that is clearly, you know, nobody in fact who's not biased is arguing that that's not related to captivity their diet or their activity levels are so different in captivity that they become, you know, diabetics or, 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 you know, hemochromat. I guess it would be hemochromatics. You know, they actually develop these diseases that they are far more likely to, to withstand in the wild where they have, you know, natural diets and, and more room to roam. And so even though they don't have some of the threats that wild dolphins have to face, they have others wild dolphins don't have to face and it all comes out in the wash at best they live as long as but not longer than so just because you have to adjust your argument doesn't mean (laughs) i guess i'll just put it very very um big-headedly just because you have to adjust your argument arguments doesn't mean your your basic argument is wrong
0: absolutely it's just you know it's like when you learn certain information you're like oh well i can just you know not fudge this but i can think in a different a different type of way about the same thing,
1: and 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 it you know because one thing is found to be true. For example, you know the, the survivorship data shows that they live as long as or, or have survivorship that is similar to wild dolphins. Because that one thing you know evolves doesn't mean other things doesn't mean that other things also evolve. They they stay the same, and um, and basically, like I said, um, I only recently discovered the prevalence of certain diseases and the difference between captivity in the wild for those diseases and the rate they occur. I only recently learned that. And so now I'm using it in my argument. So yes, the science evolves, but sometimes it evolves slightly away from your previous arguments. And sometimes it fully supports your previous arguments when you were basing those arguments on preliminary, that you find out that you were 100% right. Another really good example of that that doesn't have anything to do with captivity is the tuna dolphin situation. Intuitively, commonsensically, we realize that stampeding dolphins periodically to catch the tuna that swim underneath them is probably bad for them. (laughs) You know, basically the whole idea of stampeding any animal, like cattle across the range and have a stampede. A lot of animals get injured. A lot of animals just sort of drop dead of of cardiomyopathy. You know, it's basically a heart attack. Um, it's, It's very bad for them to be so acutely stressed, so sharply and so suddenly and for several minutes at a time maybe even an hour a stampede can go on for quite some time and then finally when it stops their health is like a mess and if that happens enough once a day twice a day three times a day for weeks on end it might kill them and we knew that commonsensically we knew that in terms of of just you know analogy looking at domesticated animals like cattle that are stampeded on the range and we were saying this tuna dolphin situation is not sustainable. You know, you might not be killing them anymore because they stopped drowning them in the nets, right? That was their big advance. said, so you might not be killing them anymore. You're letting them go before they drown, but they're completely, they're a mess. You're, you're, you're stressing them out acutely time and time again, over and over and over again in one day, let alone in one week or one month. And so we were saying, we've got to stop it, but they were like, oh, you don't have the data. Jeez. Okay, so the, so the treaty organizations, the nations that were responsible for this fishery, the fishermen themselves, they were like, oh, you don't have the data. We're not killing them anymore. We are letting them go and they're swimming off and we see them swim off and I'm sure they're fine. And we're like, well, no, again, using parallels to human physiology, to cattle physiology, to any physiology, mammalian physiology, this is highly unlikely. You are stampeding these animals multiple times in a day over time, you're probably killing them over time. You know, you're, you're shortening their lives going off with lesions on their heart and things like that and they die much younger than they should have they reproduce less well it turned out that we were right ah. the data finally started coming in we forced these governments to do the research that showed that yes indeed stampeding these animals several times a day over time for the fishery catch the tuna underneath yeah it's bad for dolphins they're not recovering you stop killing them great and they're flatlining and in fact in some cases they're still declining in terms of their population so in other words, you are harming their ability to reproduce and You aren't killing them outright anymore, but mortality is only part of the picture. And this is again, the metric of survivorship and captivity is only part of the picture. You are still subjecting them to the chronic stress of being confined unnaturally, and it has impacts on their on their lives. And again, because they're not being preyed upon by predators, because they have regular food, because they have veterinary care, because they don't have, you know, they're not entangled in fishing gear, and they're not separated from their mothers in storms, and all the other natural and unnatural threats they face in the wild, and yet they only at best have the same survivorship. These threats in the wild are being substituted for something in in captivity, and it's likely chronic stress. That's our argument in a nutshell. I'll take that.
0: Somebody actually made the idea that captivity is basically like quarantine forever, but for... <laughs> I mean, you
1: know, one of the things that I would, you know, this is a general comment about advocacy. You know, I've actually gotten involved in some of these um, fields of thought where you're trying to um, discuss advocacy as a general matter. I'm a scientist. I'm a marine mammal scientist, so I tend to really focus on um, advocacy for marine mammals. I'm not a general animal welfare biologist or a general advocacy scholar. I don't know the literature very well in those in those fields. I know it a little bit, but not that well. But one thing I have gotten involved in is sort of messaging because that's something that everybody needs to understand if they are an advocate. So they have to understand what kind of messages will resonate with their target audience. And so um, one of the things that I have published on with, with some co-authors is the idea that when things happen out there in the big wide world, you need to be able to decide on a, a dime that it's relevant to your types of arguments and then leverage it and as a good example something like um when they killed marius the giraffe does that ring a bell with you
0: yes yep it sure does yeah
1: so in denmark or holland i can't remember now but in in europe there was a zoo that uh euthanized a young giraffe he was perfectly healthy there was nothing wrong with him but he was um representative of genes they already had in their breeding program and so he was surplus quote-unquote you know, oh and, and so they basically just shot him. You know, it was a, uh, what do you call it, a bolt gun. Um, very sharp, sudden euthanasia, right? You know, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most humane ways to do it, but still quite shocking. And they actually had kids watching because they wanted to show them, this is what how we manage our population so that they don't become too inbred. And then they butchered him and they fed him to their lions. And again, it's not that I think, Any of that is so very shocking. I'm a biologist. I understand predation and, you know, the lion's made out like bandits. But why even have this animal be born if all you're going to do is kill it before it reaches breeding age? Exactly. Yeah. And You know, you're responsible for the welfare of every individual you have in your facility as a zoo or an aquarium. And if you're just going to have him be born to kill him before he reaches his second birthday, I don't understand why you even did it. It's not like the lions needed that. They, you know, you, you you use domesticated food sources for them. And those animals, and again, I'm not supporting this. I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, at least those animals, that's why they're born. But Marius is, you know, part of uh, a species that is, you know, actually endangered in the wild. And why in the world would you have give birth to him if you're just going to shoot him before he's bre- a breeding age, right in front of a bunch of kids, you know, to teach him a lesson or something like that? I. I have real ethical issues with all of that. And, and again, I'm not even saying that kids shouldn't understand that life and death is part of life, but that's not the way to teach them.
0: No, not at and all. So,
1: and so my point is, when that happened, people who are concerned about how zoos and aquariums manage their, their um, animals, you know, they needed to jump on that. And they needed to take advantage of it and say, look, this is the sort of the thing we're talking about, how they don't actually, they don't actually guarantee cradle-to-grave care. You know, which is what they should do, and so with the coronavirus pandemic, some people took that and sort of leveraged it and said, "Look, you know, now you're bored out of your skull. <laughs> you're actually yeah. some of you are depressed, which is you know very dangerous. Um, you you don't have anything to do. You, you can't go and do the things you normally do. Your 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 recreational activities have become extremely limited." You're with the same people in the same house, and you're about ready to kill your spouse, and so on and so forth. This is what their lives are like in a zoo or an aquarium. Every day. Please, awesome. you know, be sympathetic and empathetic. And I'm not disagreeing with that argument whatsoever. I actually think it's exactly right. What we're all feeling right now in lockdown—if we are bored and stressed—I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm actually handling it okay. But I am noticing, <laughs> I am noticing that you know. I can't travel right now. I love to travel. I can't do it right now. I I I am bored every once in a while and my selection of activities is really limited and it's only for maybe another year or two if I'm smart because I really do not intend to change my behavior until there's a vaccine. <laughs> but but this is their life for 30, 40, 50 years and for far and too many change. only 10 or 20 years, right? You I know mean, they don't actually live that. Some a lot of them die very young. And so, even if they're healthy, because there's nothing wrong with my health, I'm perfectly healthy, but I am not 100% right now. Absolutely, And nobody is, I don't think. I think everybody's stressed out, worried, you know, they're dealing with things like family dying and not being able to go to a funeral and that, all serious stuff, and that's their life, 24-7, 365, if you put them in a box. Because that's how smart they are, that's how social they are, that's how cultural they are. They have things they could be doing if you weren't, for example, leaving them alone all night, whales and dolphins are not nocturnal or diurnal. They are active when they're hungry and, you know, horny (laughs) and busy, and they are, and they rest when they need to rest. They can rest in the middle of the day. They can be incredibly active in the middle of the night. They have echolocation. They don't need light, right? So they, they are not diurnal or nocturnal. They are You know, they they just are active when they need to be and inactive when they need to rest. In captivity, that is completely taken away from them. And they have to, quote unquote, sleep all night because that's what humans do. And believe it or not, that is going to affect them. When you mess with the natural biorhythms of a species, these things are often encoded in their genes. They are going to get kind of messed up and it's going to have impacts on their health. When you don't get sleep, what happens to you? Eventually, you go Crazy of very cranky. Yep, absolutely. And if you if you sleep too much during the day, if you try, for example, if you become nocturnal because you're on the night shift, it's actually very difficult for humans to do that. We can we can force ourselves because we are intellectually aware of why we're doing it, but physiologically, it still has a very negative impact on us. And so that's what we're doing to these animals by making them stay awake all day and sleep all night. They that's are great- that's not the way it is for them in the wild. It's not the way they're wired, and we're forcing them into that pattern and it's wrong
0: just because we're humans and we think that we we know what's best for them
1: well not because that's the way it is for us and, and we have to take care of them and you know if we hadn't you know people people on the night shift wouldn't actually be able to maintain that it's 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 all they don't even try to put in a night shift they might have um you know night security but they don't actually have trainers there who you know unless there's like a birth or something like that then they have 24 hour you know, watch, but it's remarkable how little they try to accommodate the natural rhythms and behavior patterns of these animals because they don't think it's important. These are the people who are responsible for their welfare and they think it's okay to mess with them this way. And I have to disagree. And
0: I, and I agree with you 110%. (laughs) You actually, um, kind of answered a little bit of this question earlier, but I'm going to swing back to it real quick. So, and this, this was a few years back. Um, I went to SeaWorld one last time just to see how Blackfish had affected SeaWorld. I really wanted to see that because I had, you know, I hadn't been to SeaWorld in 15 years or something like that. So we actually went behind the scenes and we did like an up-close meeting and we got to meet Katina in Orlando. And a young lady next to me, when we got to talk to the trainer, she asked about uh, menopause in the captive orcas, and the guy, he was like, well, he's like, that's a very good question. He's like, but we don't have any evidence of any menopause, like, at all. I don't know if he meant in captive or in wild orcas, but in your TED Talks in 2014, you, I mean, you studied this, like, this was what well, you did.
1: Um, no, I didn't, actually. I studied male killer whales. Male oh, my whales. apologies, my apologies. So, um, but... I was very interested in the phenomenon of menopause and what that trainer meant was they don't believe in it. This is very fascinating to me. So SeaWorld as a corporation doesn't believe in a lot of the things that are facts. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds funny, but, but, you know, for example, menopause. So um, it is a very rare phenomenon in the animal kingdom because basically if you can't reproduce, you have no genetic or biological value or evolutionary value. Um, generally speaking. So across the animal kingdom, whether you're a bird or a mammal or a reptile, it doesn't matter. You reproduce until you die, whether you're male or female. And this is true even for some of these long-lived mammals that you think of as being highly social and all that, like elephants. Elephants could live to be 65, almost 70 years, and the last calf that a female will have will be five years, which is usually the the dependency period uh, before she dies in other words she will have one final calf she will raise it to weaning and to independence and then she'll die so you know and if you can imagine a 6 year old elephant having a baby you know there you go so it's yeah. amazing so 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 that's the general rule of thumb in evolution and biology that animals reproduce until they die male or female there are a handful of species where that is not true where they the females experience Reproductive senescence, which is menopause in us. Menopause literally means the end of menses, the end of your period. So it's not really a very accurate phrase to use for animals that don't menstruate. But we all, as mammals, go into what's called estrus, right? That's when we're fertile. That's when we can get pregnant. And so all mammals, and you know, quite a few other animals, you know, have estrus. Right? Well, at some period for this handful of mammals estrus ends you no longer become fertile you stop producing eggs you you become infertile but you don't die and in fact not only don't you and this is for females only ma- male um killer whales male human beings right it's that thing that we all you know a hundred year old guy can still have a baby um <laughs> right. So um, not as easily, you know, the sperm become less motile and they become, you know, the semen volume declines and all that, but they can still have a baby, whereas females can't. So at some point, and in killer whales and in human beings, it's very similar. It's about 40, 45 years of age. In human females, it can be later, 50, 55, but nevertheless, around that time frame, you stop entering estrus. You stop having fertile hurt, periods at all. And in our case, we actually stop menstruating. And for orcas, it can be um, very similar to human beings. You can live many, many years past that point, 30, 40, 50 years. So it's not just, you know, like elephants, five years, five years after you have your last calf, that's when you die. That's still reproductive senescence in a way, right? You know, the last five years of your life, but it's, it's not really permanent, right? Or what I'm trying to say, you don't really have a life beyond that because you're still raising your last calf. You're still a mother, and then you. Don't. Gotcha. And so, in um, orcas and in human beings, we have a whole life still to live while we cannot have children. And of course, if you did have children, then you're still a mother. But those children are now adults themselves and can reproduce. You know, you're a grandmother now and you can't reproduce. And so the question is, why did that evolve in the handful of species where it did evolve? And apparently, it's related to the value that female's knowledge has to the group. So for example, one of the primary um, conditions that's required for this to evolve is sociality, a degree of sociality where information and knowledge is of value to the group. And that, that I'm not implying it's group selection, I'm not a fan of group selection at all. Um, I'm just saying that you know you are going to increase the survivorship of your own children by living past your reproductive life, by having a post-reproductive life. And in orcas, apparently, they increase the longevity of their sons by great degree. So by living beyond their body's ability to reproduce and having this post-reproductive lifespan, they maximize the survivorship of their sons, who then, of course, can have lots of kids. and. It's such a tight bond and it's such a tight relationship that when an older female finally dies in her 60s or 70s or 80s, her still surviving adult sons, who are probably one of the last offspring they ever had, right? Right. They might be 50 or 60 by then. Say 50, let's be conservative. So the female became, uh, she had a, a male calf at 40. She entered reproductive senescence and now she's 80 and her son is 40. She dies finally, just from old age. Right. And he'll often die right after her. Wow. Like within a year, wow. he will disappear. And I saw that happen. There were a couple of females who died during my tenure up there in, in Johnson Street, and their sons disappeared. Jeez. And it's probably because they become sort of socially adrift, marginalized. They don't have their mother who gave them status, who gave them structure who introduced them to nice girls, as I put it in my TED talk, and they basically fade away. And so all of that is in the literature. It's been discussed at great length by folks who are very well versed in the concept of reproductive senescence and Seawold simply rejects it's true. They literally just reject that it's true.
0: Yeah, they did, and I felt that that little girl looked at me, too, and I kind of looked at her, and we just, we knew, we knew something was wrong, yeah. and so I'm really glad here's, I went- here's,
1: here's a good Here's a good example. This is a, a personal anecdote, you know, that isn't in the peer-reviewed literature anywhere because, you know, there's nowhere I can put it, but I, I can tell you the story. I was talking to somebody high up at SeaWorld um, at one point, um, fairly recently, but anyway, um, and I was trying to get them to be more, to do better research, you know, to do more research because if they weren't gonna allow outside researchers to come in and possibly find things out that they didn't want in the literature, then they should do it themselves and control the narrative. You know, I don't mean cherry pick the data, but just, you know, publish what they want to publish, but make it real, make it right, make it correct and accurate and just get more out there in the literature because it's remarkably thin peer reviewed literature folder from SeaWorld's Orcas. Very, very little outside research has been done on those orchids. And and you know, and they're all talking about how it's so important that they exist because they're so important to research and yet they don't allow these outside researchers in. So I said, okay, fine. If you're not gonna allow the outsiders in, do it yourself, but do it, please, because it needs to get done. And I said, one of the studies you could do, for example, it's just an interesting study and, and might have some value to the welfare of the animals in captivity is why does the dorsal fin collapse, right? Male dorsal fins collapse. wrapped right over their back, you know, tilacum being the perfect example, but all of them have that happen to them. And it's very rare in the wild. One to five percent of adult male killer whales have collapsed dorsiflens, and they're usually because of disease or injury, whereas it's simply because of captivity that it occurs in captivity. And we believe it's gravity, right? You know, they spend so much time at the surface that as they grow, their fin, which reaches some sort of critical height to base width ratio, and it falls over. And it grows that way. It's not like it just flops. It literally just starts to grow downward because gravity is pulling on it all the time at the surface. And so it wasn't so much even why, because that's probably correct, but, you know, it would be good to confirm it. But how does it happen? Like what happens to the internal tissue that causes it to lose stability that way and to allow the dorsum to grow that way? And and he looked at me, this, this uh, SeaWorld person, and said... Oh, but that's, you know, that's a, that's natural. Um, it happens all the time in shallow water orcas.
0: Mm, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, so- and I said, I said, what's a shallow
1: water orca? Who told you that? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, the folks at SeaWorld who are the experts told me that. And I said, well, then they were just making something up. There's no such thing as a shallow water orca. And, see, but, but, then- and, and that person laughed and said, you tell me one thing, they tell me something else. But I'm like, yeah, and they're just lying to me. There's no such thing. So again, think- SeaWorld scientists, veterinarians, whoever is working there, they're actually telling their colleagues complete and total lies, let alone the public. And that
0: actually kind of goes into the next question. So the questions would be in general, why is Releasing captive orcas still a controversy, and is this some sort of corporate agenda to keep business as usual, or is this a contest on who the experts really are?
1: Um, it, is a, it is an agenda. Obviously, they don't want to release their animals because they need to keep them to still make money off of them. Of um, I also think that if they agreed to let them go, then um, it would, of course, imply that they've been wrong all along. And ego alone won't let a lot of people do that. Um, But it isn't so much about release anymore, is it? It's about retirement to sanctuaries, and those are different things. Um, I do believe that there are several individuals in captivity today that are candidates for rehabilitation in an effort to release them back to an independent life in the wild. But, But most of those animals are actually the recently caught ones in Russia. And the longer-term captive animals, like Lolita or Corky, you know, it's it's unclear to me completely whether they could be released to the wild anymore. They've been in, in captivity and dependent on human beings for so long. Again, they're not magical, mystical creatures from no, Mars, absolutely. right? They they've been damaged. They've been heavily impacted, heavily affected by this life we've we've made for them, and this 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 inadequate life we've made for them, and could they ever be independent in the wild again? Probably not. I also personally, this is just my personal opinion, I don't actually think we can release captive-born animals, at least not as things stand. We're not there yet for sure because we're pretty crappy orcas. How can we teach them how to be fully competent adult orcas when they were born in a tank? And, and everything, everything their social life, their, their foraging life, their, their, everything about their life is unnatural. So, you know, since, since we can't teach them, the, it's what their mother would do, right? And their, their pod mates would teach them how to be wild orca. And all of that's been taken away from them. You know, once they're adults, the damage is done. So Absolutely. what we want to do instead is retire them to sanctuaries. And there's sanctuaries for every species out there, almost, not quite, but bears, tigers, lions, elephants, you know, there, there are sanctuaries for animals that have been rescued from really poor situations, whether it's a circus or a roadside zoo or a breeding farm or whatever, a canned hunt ranch or anything like that. There are sanctuaries for these animals. And it's easy enough, quote unquote, easy enough <laughs> to do it on land, but doing it in the marine environment is a bit trickier, even just because of politics, right? Or regulatory matters, right? It's harder to get permission To use a bit of water, a bit of ocean, than it is to get to own a a plot of land and use that. So, um, you know, we are working on that. Um, We're very close to having both a warm water and a cold water sanctuary, and then hopefully there will be more of them eventually. But we need to get one of each up and running to prove the concept, and I'm all, you know, we're working on it. But that's the best for many of these animals that we can hope for. So my future, my, what I'm looking for in, in my advocacy is ending the breeding and the captures. No more animals in captivity that can't cope. Let's just stop the practice through attrition. Don't replace any animals who die. Don't breed them, don't bring any animals in from the wild. Those that can be released should be evaluated and rehabilitated and released, if at all possible. And then those that can be retired because we have enough space for them should be retired. I think every cetacean in captivity is a candidate for retirement. It's really just a matter of whether we'll ever have the space for them. And then the rest will have to stay in those concrete boxes, I'm afraid. That's just a, a harsh reality. But we can improve their lives. There's a lot of ways, like I told you, you know, the industry is remarkably resistant to some very simple ways of improving their life because they're so sure they're right about how they're treating them. And they don't even know that their dorsal fins collapse only in captivity and not in the wild. There's shallow water orcas somewhere. You know, it's just to me that that they're held up as the experts strikes me as really quite ironic. They are experts in captive orcas, but that's not saying much because what they believe about orcas just generally is often false, often wrong. And so, you know, the idea that they, they are held up as the experts on these animals is, is kind of amusing to me. The people who are actually experts, and I'm not even pointing to myself, as I said, I don't do field research anymore. I'm, I'm an advocate now. And so I am an orca biologist, you know, but I don't hold myself up as one of the world's orca experts. There's a lot of folks I know who are still active in the field and I consider them the world's orca experts. And to a person, they don't disagree that orcas in captivity suffer. Some of them think it's okay because of education and research. And they literally say the greatest good for the greatest number. In other words, they, they, are, they support the sacrifice of those individuals to benefit the wild with, with the research and, and the conservation message that these places give the public. And I'm like, well, first of all, they don't give a very good conservation message. You know, they, 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 they don't really know what's going on out in the wild. And so their, their education is poor. You, you're being misled because you don't actually go to these places and listen to the show, which is you know, full of fallacies and so on. And so aside from the fact that that argument you know, doesn't hold water simply because these facilities aren't doing a great education and conservation job or research job, whatever, um, they still, even those researchers who work in the field, recognize that orcas in captivity are suffering. They just think it's um, cost-benefit analysis-wise acceptable. And so, I, you know, of course, I disagree with that. I don't think it's acceptable for any of these sentient creatures to be suffering like this. But not a single true orca expert argues that keeping them in a concrete box is not in their best interest. And, and that kind of brings
0: me to my next question. Um, we talked about like the the newly really caught uh, Russian orcas. Why is Eurasia so into captivity now? What is well, you why... know,
1: it's it's actually it's funny you say that. It, it's not that they are suddenly or they're they're basically just following us. We you know they're emulating the Western world. Um, for a very long time, they were basically you know closed off. Right during the um, height of the Mao era, for example, of course, Cultural Revolution and all that to even express a Western thought was you were off to the Gula, you know, they were not in any, in any way, um, even open to Western, you know, if you traveled anywhere, you were defecting, you know, it's just not possible to exchange ideas now with the internet and with, you know, their experiments, with capitalism and so on, you know, they've got Ikea, (laughs) they've got Mercedes (laughs) Benz, you know, they've got Starbucks for God's sake, you know, and so they are actually being exposed western ideas every day and the, and the government recognizes that the, the genie is out of the bottle and so they are now um, allowing these entrepreneurial um, quasi-capitalist endeavors uh, you know but they're still partially owned by the government because they are still communist. it's just all very weird right. and so one of the things that they really glommed onto as a great thing to emulate is the Dolphinarian, the oceanarian there were several i don't I couldn't give you a number, but let's just say conservatively, a couple dozen for a couple of decades. And then suddenly they exploded because of this opening up and the, and the Internet and all of that. And they are making a lot of money, but it's because the public that goes and because, you, know, you know, customer base is largely Chinese. Of course. Or, or local, you know, like Russian, you know, because not a lot of people go on vacation to China out from outside China. And if they do, they're not going to go to a dolphin area necessarily. They're going to see the Great Wall and all that sort of thing. And so um, most of the customers at these facilities in these countries, like you said, in, in, in Eurasia, um, are in fact locals. And they are just eating it up with a spoon because they don't know there's a controversy. Once they learn there's a controversy, they're human beings just like us. They think, you know, they, they figure it out. They, they absorb information. And once they learn this stuff, they're like, oh, wow, hmm. oops you know, and they think again. And so we're, we're having some impact. I am working in China. I am working in Russia. I'm trying to give them their blackfish moment. And hopefully, you know, hopefully they will cover what took us 50 years in five. That's what I'm hoping, because, you know, they, they came late to the party, as it were, just because of this um, late flowering of, you know, sort of pseudo capitalism. Um, now that they're here and they're learning the same things we learned over the course of decades, in months and years, I'm hoping they sort of figure this out a lot faster than we did in the West. That
0: would be, that would be a very good thing. So we have hit our hour mark. I actually gave you a 40 minute uh, time span here and we hit an hour. So my apologies, didn't mean to keep you. This part of the um, Orca podcast where we would like you to um, either promote yourself, promote your work, or add any additional information. What can we do for you and what can we do for the captive Orcas?
1: Well, I urge everybody to visit our website, awionline.org, Animal Welfare Institute's um, website. If you go to the Captive Marine Wildlife section, you'll find a lot of my materials. We just translated um, our newest edition of the case against marine mammals in captivity into Japanese. So we now have it in Russian, Chinese, Spanish, and Japanese, as well as English, of course. And it we just did that last year. It was the first update in 10 years. So it's the definitive... A white paper on why we have this position. Um, and uh, there's a lot of other documents up there, some videos and all that you might find useful. And um, I hope you go there. And of course, please become a member of the Animal Welfare Institute. We, we always um, appreciate public support and uh, I will continue to do the work I do and until I retire, which hopefully won't be for some time. <laughs>
0: I hope not either, because we're going to need more of these podcasts. I have so many more questions,
1: <laughs> and I'm more than happy to do them. I mean, I, I do. I do tend to ramble on, um, and no, no, uh, that's fine with me. I know I, I, you know, I, I can talk about this stuff all day. So anytime, I'm happy to come back.
0: Perfect. Well, we're gonna go ahead and sign off here. I'm gonna have the audience, um, just to make sure you guys know, I do have a Facebook for the Orca Nerd Podcast. Go over there, like it, and that is where um, I get a lot of my feedback from. And not only feedback, you guys can ask me questions there. That'd be perfect. Oh, well, may Dr. I
1: may oh, I just interrupt yeah, one more time? Please. Um, the last thing I'd like to ask is is for folks to visit my Facebook page. I actually do have a community page from the Dolphin point from the Dolphins' point of view. And I also have a Twitter um, account, which is at F-R-Dolphin, P-O-V, from the Dolphins point of view. And uh, I do only talk about this issue on both of those platforms. So, you know, if you have any questions based on this podcast, please feel free to ask me at those two um, platforms.
0: Perfect. I'll make sure to link those in the description below. That way you guys can get there fast and easy. So, Dr. Rose, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming on here today.
1: I was happy to be here, and I do look forward to coming again. Sounds good. We shall see you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.